0: You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may the hearers entreat that no further messages be spoken to them. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. From the epistle to the Hebrews, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Last week, I must say I was delighted to hear Father Matthew illustrate the whole communion of saints using one of my favorite examples, a great cloud of witnesses, and by this I mean my beloved Texas Aggie 12th man. (laughs) Now, I must agree with him that the experience of participating in such a crowd is a nearly mystical experience. I remember several years ago, I took Father Nicholas to a game, and we were standing in the student section, and he thought... It was just, like, bewildering. I was nuts. Uh, But he was very right to point out that the communion of saints is greater. Ever looking to Jesus and ever reminding the enemy that he has been utterly and completely defeated. Now, that is something that does happen occasionally at Kyle Field, but not always. (laughs) But beloved... It's always true here, in this place. It is always true as we join in the heavenly chorus of holy, holy, holy. Do you know what the enemy does when we sing that? Shudders, screams, shrieks. He hates it. This is, in essence, the long and the short of the epistle to the Hebrews that the earthly Jerusalem will always fail us, will always disappoint, will always be shaken. Our own lives, our own bodies will always fail us, unaided by divine grace. The recipients of this letter are perhaps looking to save and preserve the earthly city. I actually think that what they're seeking to preserve and save is the city of Jerusalem itself. The writer is reminding them of the mystery to which they have come in Christ, to a mystery that cannot, be sho- that cannot be touched, to a mystery that cannot be shaken, to a mystery that cannot be besieged by the Romans. They have indeed come to a mystery greater than that which is shrouded in mystery in Scripture, the revelation of God to his people there on Mount Sinai. The opening verse of today's reading is evocative of the tabernacle, or maybe right up there when the law is given on Mount Sinai, a mountain covered in smoke and fire, continual tempests being poured out upon the people. It's not something which elicits comfort in us. It elicits shaking, trembling fear. One can even think, reading this this morning, of the burning, fiery serpent raised up in the sight of the people, an image which, if you read John's gospel, we see it points us to the cross. And that is precisely where the writer will go, to the cross, to the blood which is sprinkled, which speaks more graciously than that of Abel. But more about that later. Christians have always struggled with this essential quandary, That certainly to strive for this world, to strive for justice and peace, to fight against evil is a good thing. Yet the problem comes when we fight for this earthly reality, for what can be touched, to the point of apostasy. To the point of falling away from the faith, to the point of falling away from the crucified one. The Christians' alignments within the various worlds of this world, the world of politics, the world of academia, the world of art and music, the world of athletic achievement, even the world of our families, the world of our friends, the world of our businesses, are always subject to the absolute lordship of Jesus. We can easily be led into a kind of idolatry, which will ultimately show up in our witness, if it's a witness to anyone else. It is one thing to believe in justice and to work for it, but as soon as that commitment results in a rejection of Jesus and of his grace, and especially of Jesus crucified and risen, we have shown ourselves to be captive to a dark and satanic egotism. Over our family retreat, I read the Brothers Karamazov and was particularly struck by the story told of the Grand Inquisitor, they're in Spain, and Jesus shows up during the time of the Inquisition. And, of course, they put him in prison. And this grand inquisitor looks Jesus in the face, and I'm paraphrasing, says to him, you left us in charge, we did a great job, you're no longer needed. No, the communion of saints is oriented toward the cross and the Lord upon it. The whole church looks ever east to the rising sun, ever forward, ever looking to Jesus. And it is precisely in this looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, that all the rest is added to us. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be what? Added to you. So if you seek justice, if you seek an end to gun violence, if you seek to address the climate or trends in education or whatever it is, that work, that life must flow out of intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ. We live in an age in which there is a constant pressure to send all the right signals about our commitments, pressure to say the right thing, to be on the right side, Or for many of us to be on the left side. And it can seem innocuous. What does it matter? I mean, who cares what I think about X, Y, Z? But I would suggest to you that this striving for acceptability in the public square can be intoxicating. You press that post button on Facebook, not out of witness to Jesus, but to send the right message to the right people whose approval you deeply crave. Even if you're not on social media and one of those free unplugged types, analog types, the desire to say that right thing to the right people for the sake of being seen as with the right group or worse against another is deadly. We we have seen a number of cases of absolute apostasy in the Christian world as of late, and as best I can tell, at the heart of this are two main contributing factors. First, it is a faith that is, and only ever has been, paper thin. Secondly, there seems to be a deep and unassuaged thirst to be acceptable within the culture. The cost of being a witness is just too high. And that is a terrible combination. Weak faith meets the cares of the world. These are the seeds which get utterly scorched on the path. To be clear, this is central to the reason that catechesis is such a big deal here. Robust worship is such an important thing. Worship that is thick, not thin, and oriented directly to the mysteries of the crucified Christ. Now, going back to the letter to the Hebrews for just a moment, this is the image which the reader, which the writer is putting in the minds and hearts of the reader, including you and me. A heavenly liturgy. So that's the first part. It's a heavenly liturgy. The whole communion of saints. Looking to Jesus. Being drawn up and into the divine life. Now, I'm going to say that again. The writer is laying out before us a heavenly liturgy, the whole communion of saints looking to Jesus, being drawn up and into the divine life. Think upon Christ for a moment, crucified, risen, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. He ascends to glory. We see from this, what we see from this is the kind of redemption that is promised to us. Our human bodies entering into the glory of the divine life. Jesus is the pioneer. I don't know if you've ever been to Oregon, uh, seen the Oregon Trail. Maybe you just played the game. <laughs> but you can still go and you can see the wheel ruts that decade after decade after decade of pioneers in their covered wagons laid down on the way to Oregon. They're still there. Someone was the first one to cut that wheel rut. A pioneer, a true pioneer. And the writer of the letter to the Hebrews says, he is the what? Pioneer and perfecter of our salvation. He has gone where we desire to go. You can imagine all the saints who placed their wheels in the ruts which he cut in this earthly life. In which he cuts even now. It is a surefire way there to put yourself in the way of Jesus, to put yourself in service to him who is truth, who is the way, who is life, and to submit your whole life to him who is life. The church fathers at points, and I'm thinking of Origen, whom I studied this summer, compare this to an iron in the fire, Apart from the fire, iron is cold, hard, dark, and unyielding. But what happens when you put it in the fire and run the bellows like a good blacksmith? The iron, which is by nature cold, hard, dark, and unyielding, becomes suffused with the properties of fire a consuming fire. The fathers look to this image of God as a consuming fire, and they think of what becomes of our nature. Does it not become, in a very real way, divinized by divine grace in the ascent into the mysteries of God? Does it not become less like its unaided self and more like something or, more appropriately, someone else? When we read today that we have come to the heavenly Jerusalem, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to a judge who is God of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel, this is precisely what is being said. That human life meets its ultimate perfection, for those of you who are philosophers, meets its ultimate telos, not in some rational standard which can be easily identified, but in this perfect covenantal sharing in the very life of God mediated by the blood of Jesus. And how gracious that blood is. This reference to the blood of Abel is completely intentional. It's not just sort of thrown in as a flourish. Um, You know, as Father Matthew said, you should go back and just read the stories, you know, that are referenced in Hebrews, and he's exactly right. That's what you should do. So let's do it. You remember the story. It's given in the fourth chapter of Genesis. Adam and Eve have two sons. The older brother is Cain, and the younger brother is Abel. And we read, now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. If you're paying attention, you can see the contrast immediately. Abel is a shepherd and therefore a man of commitment. He is one who works day in and day out, who is not averse to blood and sickness and birthing lambs and running after lost sheep. Cain, on the other hand, is a gardener, and there's no shame in that, but he likes to put a seed in the ground and let it grow. It's no slight. But think for a moment of the context here. This is right after this family has been expelled from the garden. A garden. Not a sheepfold, a garden. You can see that Abel has embraced this new reality of death, of blood sacrifice. And Cain is singing along in the words of Crosby, Stills, and Nash, We've got to get ourselves back to the garden. I didn't do that for the first service. I did that for you because I knew you'd appreciate it. He wants to be a gardener like his father, and to avoid all the nasty blood and the fleshly entanglements, he wants to grow vegetables. But we see as they offer their gifts that the Lord has regard for Abel in his sacrifice, but no regard for Cain. The text does not say he had regard for Abel in his sacrifice and less regard for Cain. It says he had no regard for Cain. You say, what's up with that? That doesn't seem fair. But we find out why later in Scripture. It's in the first epistle of John, and John opines on this. He says, why did he kill his brother? Later, because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Cain acts in pride and arrogance that is ultimately deadly. If he cannot sacrifice a sheep, then he will gladly kill his brother. His sacrifice is little more than a show of his prowess and accomplishment before God. God. You made us till the soil and the sweat of our brow, and look what I did. Isn't it amazing? But Abel has to take a knife to his beloved lamb. He looks to spilled blood on the ground, and when his own blood is spilled out on the ground, what do we read about it? It cries out from the ground. God can hear it. He tells Cain, I can hear it calls out for justice. It calls out for vengeance. And this is what the writer of Hebrews wants us to see in this blood spilled more graciously than the blood of Abel. Not blood that calls out for vengeance, but blood that calls out for redemption. The blood of Jesus sprinkled upon the saints poured out graciously and specifically in the two sacraments of the gospel, baptism and the Holy Eucharist, do you see where this is going? You don't want to go back to the garden because it can be shaken. The writer has taken us right into the very heart of Scripture, right to the heart of the mysteries of God, to the fire of divine love, to the very things for which our hearts yearn for the very things for which our hearts are completely unsatisfied with anything else. A few days ago, I was at HEB, and uh, I wasn't wearing clericals. I was, I was dressed in shorts and a shirt. And, and the guy serving paella, um, if you think of him, pray for him. He, he said, can we talk? And I said, sure. He's like, you're a priest, right? I said, yeah. He said, he told me about his nephew who's five years old and has a terrible brain tumor and will likely die. And he said, I don't know if my faith can make it through this. And I said, the fact that you don't think that means you yearn for something greater than what's here. You have have yearnings and desires that far outstrip the ability of this world to give it. And I found myself speaking directly to myself. Think of the disciples on the road to Emmaus as they walk with Jesus. As Jesus unfolds scripture to them, they are taken to the very heart of scripture as the divine son of God unveils it. And what do they say? Did not our hearts burn within us? They are taken to the heart of the mysteries of divine love as he breaks bread before them and is revealed to them. They have been scorched by the consuming fire of God and they have lived. And yet, there's a rub, isn't there? What a tragedy it is that even then, you and I can be found to be refusing the very one who is speaking directly to us heart. A heart. Out of this heart set aflame in the fire of God, the human heart of Jesus speaking tenderly to your heart and mine, his his set aflame and ours still very much in need of redemption and healing. Still so in need to be set aflame and yet not consumed. And we reject his word. We reject his love. And, beloved, we're not talking about one big final rejection, the big apostasies that get announced on Instagram. We're talking about the little rejections and the tiny, often unseen denials of the one who has saved us. Hear these words again from Hebrews. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. His voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This phrase, yet once more, he says, indicates the removal of what is shaken as of what has been made, in order that what cannot be shaken may remain. All of this is in the context of what came earlier in the chapter. The writer calls the reader to consider Jesus who endured open hostility from sinners against himself to consider themselves as sons and daughters to regard the discipline of the Lord as love. We don't often equate burning painful fire with love but that's pretty much it. Let me tell you it is so easy to be shaken up by life. Your house is falling apart, your AC's gone out, your bank account is low, your car's dead, your friends have turned against you, your own family's turned against you, your confidence is shaken, you at times feel utterly forsaken. And beloved, I want to encourage you to consider how the Lord is shaking your confidence in the things of this world and burning it out of you. With a love you cannot even begin to imagine. Purging you of all other attachments and making you fit to be where he himself is. And where is that, you might ask? Where is Jesus in the midst of my dreadful suffering and sanctification that I don't like all the time, if I'm completely honest about it? Where is he? That's what that guy asked me. Where's God? First, he's on the cross. We think in our feeble minds that he has been taken down from the cross, and we're so glad of that, that the cross is no longer fused to his identity, that his triumph has relegated the cross to the past. And yet, look at the number of crosses around here. It's a mistake to think that. I mean, listen, here's the deal. Nobody dies a horrific, tragic tragic death, and they say, uh, oh, yeah, he's the guy who, like, raced motorcycles. No, they're like, he's the guy who died in a fiery motorcycle accident. They didn't talk about his life, they talk about his death. And we should talk about the life of Jesus, too, but we need to talk about We need to talk about his passion. This epistle draws us directly to that sprinkled blood, directly to the horrors of the cross and to the graciousness of the one crucified upon it. Jesus still speaks from the cross, still calls us to be with him and like him in his sufferings. And might I suggest to you this morning that if the Lord is offering you a cross and that if you have up to this point despised it, hated it, begged to be relieved of it, and that up to this point you've said, I don't want it, that you at this very moment accept it. Second, Jesus calls us to be where he himself is is. And that is right in the bosom of the Father. No less the crucified one. No less the one who has suffered. In the bosom of the Father, the partaker of the divine nature, that's where he wants you to be. And maybe you have refused that great gift through innumerable sins, which you attempt to justify or simply forget. I just want to move on. Maybe you have in no small amount of pride thought, I don't really want to feel this heat. It's too much. Can't I be something more like God's equal? Or worse, his superior? Or maybe you're on the other end. You've just been timid. Unable to believe that the Lord is calling out even to you to enter into the fire of his love and to burn with love for him that if you are honest about it, you fear. In either instance, it is the work of the Holy Spirit to sanctify you, to burn away the impurities, burn away the dross, and make you fit for heaven. It is not without pain, and it is not without bewilderment, and it is not without suffering, but it is love. Friends, the Lord is making you and he's making me, I'm preaching to myself this morning, above all. The Lord is making you and me fit to be where he is, upon the cross and with the Father, For this great mercy, let us be continually thankful. Let us approach this altar today with reverence and awe. Let us strive to enter by the narrow gate which he has set forth for us. And let us sit at table in the kingdom of God, and let us become suffused with his very fire. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.